is proper attitudes and proper behaviors in worship. Uh, and we looked at men's aspect of worship, and we're in the middle of uh, looking at fem female aspects of worship. Uh, and we've broken it into several sections. Well, today we're wrapping it up. And what we're looking at today, we're going to, 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 13 to 15. And Paul's going to take his argument from the creative order. He's going to go all the way back to Genesis and look at this argument from creative order. So, uh, hopefully by now we've found it. I'll read our passage, and remember, we've kind of taken it out of context because we only got so much time. I'm going to read our passage. It's going to seem disconnected, and hopefully I'll tie it back together here as we go through. He says, For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. That's the passage we're going to be looking at here today. Uh, if you don't mind, I'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll get to looking at it. So, Lord, we do thank you for the safety you've given us here today, that the storm bounced off the coast and missed us, uh, devastated so much area that we just finished talking about. Uh, we do thank you for the safety of the folks that we do know down there. I know the Tiltons are all right, and their, uh, their church building is all right. Uh, so we thank you for the safety that you've given to those folks we know. We do ask that you'll help the folks who are facing difficulty, and there sure is a lot of them. As we were saying downstairs in prayer time, we, we ask that your people will step up so that your name can be seen as great, even in this disaster. We thank you for that. We ask that you'll guide, guide us through your word. Show us what you'd have for us. Help us to apply it to our lives today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So again, as we're, as we're looking today, and we come to verse 13 of 1 Timothy 2, we look at exactly why Paul gave the command for women not to teach men in the church. You recall that's where we left off with last week. So let's back up. Uh, we'll back up to verse uh, 11. It says, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. That's where we wrapped up last week. I'm not going to teach it again. Now we get the reason why. Paul says, For Adam was first formed, then Eve. So as he's giving these, uh, the reasons why worship ought to be the way it is, he gives two major reasons that we're going to look at today. The first one's the simple order of creation. Adam was formed first. Uh, the second is that Eve was deceived. And we're going to look at that when we get to verse 14. Now based on the way Paul presents the argument here, he's making the case that the different gender roles in the church actually predate the fall. People take different arguments on different things. Well, that was before the law, that was before this, that was before that. Well, this is actually before the fall. It goes all the way back to God created Adam 
first, then Eve. Now, it goes because of that, since that's the case, it applies to all people groups for all times. That's not a popular view today. So many churches and so many people who are looking at this try to say that this is cultural. Well, you can blow that argument right out of the water by the fact that Paul goes all the way back to prior to the fall, to creative order, who was created first, blows that argument right out of the water. Cultural aspects, this is before anybody had any culture. Adam was totally uncultured till Eve got there. Uh, <laughs> it's not good for a man to live alone. God saw that. So this is not a cultural command. This is not a command that Paul gave to the church of Ephesus only. Uh, and we talked a little bit uh, about last week about, uh, well, was, this was a problem for Ephesus because uh, it was women who were the biggest teachers of false teaching in those days. Uh, they came right out of the Diana worship, and I, I made a little bit of a case about that. Some of that's true. And so coming out of false idol worship, they were teaching a lot of false teaching. That's, that's the problem. I've heard people say that. And some people will teach that Paul didn't allow women to teach because in those days women weren't as educated as men. And we touched on that a little bit. And so they're unqualified to teach. That's why they can't teach. And both of those arguments try to make the case that Paul's command from verse 12 was just a temporary command and as such doesn't really apply to you and I in the 21st century. But if that were the case then Paul's argument all the way back to creation doesn't make any sense, does it? If it was just Ephesus at that time, and if it was just because women weren't educated, but women are educated more now. In fact, uh, there's statistics that say that uh, women in America are more educated than men on average, all other things being equal. Uh, so clearly we don't have to worry about that anymore, right? Paul's going all the way back to creation. That It doesn't matter. On top of that, the only false teachers that Paul ever does call out in Ephesus are men. Isn't that interesting? Uh, if you actually look at what the Bible says, Paul does call out false teachers in Ephesus, and they're all men. Want to look at them? Uh, let's look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Paul's talking to Timothy. Same book. It's right in our context. Holding faith and a good conscience which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwrecked, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, two fellows, whom I delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's go over to 2 Timothy, chapter 2, uh, 17 and 18. And their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Two false teachers, both male. Uh, and we can go to Acts chapter 20 and verse 30. Uh, back all the way up to verse 28. This is Paul talking at Ephesus. He says, Take heed therefore of yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers 
to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Talking to the elders at Ephesus. There's absolutely no evidence of any women ever teaching any false teaching in Ephesus in the first century, in the Bible or outside of the Bible. Zero evidence. Another uh, thing that we do have that kind of blows away the educational argument uh, is that there's many scriptural references to highly educated women in Asia Minor in those days, not, admittedly not specifically Ephesus. Uh, you can look at Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. I'm not going to look at all of them. Luke 10, uh, verses 38 to 41. John 11, 21 to 27. Acts 18, pretty much the whole chapter. And uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 19. Highly educated women all over Asia Minor. So I think we can rule out that argument. It's not because of lack of education that Paul doesn't want women teaching in church. And finally, I've got to give you a completely off-the-wall claim that some people make. Uh, and, what, and I alluded to it a little bit last week. Some people will make the claim that the word translated women and men, we already talked about it's the same word. One is a male form, one is a female form. It refers to marriageable-aged adult males and females. People will take that, because it says marriageable age, they'll say that it should, ought to be translated wives and husbands. Some Bibles even translate it that way, that wives ought not to teach their husbands. Uh, that argument doesn't really hold up very well, and not very many people hold to it. I, the only real reason I bring it up is because you may hear it at some point. Uh, again, the reason that doesn't hold up at all is if that were the case, then why does Paul go all the way back to creation to establish his case? Right? If he's talking about marriage, then uh, why does he go all the way back to creation on this? So, having established all that, now we need to understand that God regards men and women as being of equal value, but not identical and not interchangeable. This is very timely what we're talking about here today because that's exactly what our political discussions are all about today. Political and social discussions are all about men and women are identical, they're interchangeable. You can't, how, how can you even tell if one's a man or a woman or, or this or that? God sees them as equal, but they are not identical and they are not interchangeable. Even going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we see that both unity and Diversity, I was going to say disparity, but that doesn't quite sound right, are emphasized. It goes, so God created man in his own image, that's unity, in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Diversity. We've got unity and diversity all the way back to Genesis 1.27. So it's these differences which bring differing roles in the family. Bear that in mind, because that's going to uh, straighten out what we're going to look at in verse 15. 
different roles in the family. Women are mothers, men are fathers. The roles may intersect at times, but they are different roles. Again, that's going to really come into play when we uh, look to verse 15. And again, right at the end of the book, when Paul goes, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul compares the church to a household. Let's look at that. I'll steal my own thunder. 1 Timothy 3 and 15, he says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtst to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. He compares the church to a household. We'll explain that more when we get there. The roles within a household are important, and the roles within a church are very similar to the roles within a household. When we get to chapter 3, we're going to see that proven men are the, to be the overseers of the church, and they're tasked with instruction, and they're tasked with oversight of the church. Just as in Genesis chapter 2, Adam got certain responsibilities that were not assigned to Eve. Eve wasn't told that she had to tend the garden and to keep it. Adam was told that he had to tend the garden and to keep it. Different roles, you see. And when women understand the significance of their role and the difference of their role within the church, they are aligning themselves with Eve's position before the fall. So let's move to verse 14 where Paul's, the second half of the argument comes in. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now the link between verse 13 and 15 is just as tight as the link between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Verse 13, as we already mentioned, argues from before the fall, the original creative order. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Verse 14 argues from the fall itself. The next step in human history was the fall. Adam wasn't deceived. The woman was. It's true Eve sinned first, but she was also deceived. Whereas Adam's sin was conscious and willful, Adam knew what he was doing and did it anyway. And it had devastating consequences for the whole human race, which we can read about. Let's go to uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, where Paul indicts Adam with the criminal act. He says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So what does that have to do with anything, Brother Dan? I can hear you asking. Let me try to explain a little bit. Although Adam was created first, he neglected his proper role. Remember, that is what our topic is for the whole chapter, is proper roles within the church, within the family, everywhere, all the way back to creation. Adam neglected his proper role. His role was leader and protector. And as soon as he neglected that, he stopped being the leader, stopped being the protector. Satan was able to creep in and deceive Eve. And to get her to take the lead in sinning. And to bring ruin to the whole human race. 
you see, one of the key pieces to understanding the fall of man is a failure to follow the proper roles that God had assigned. God assigns specific roles. When you leave those roles, all of humanity fell. We're now discussing, in our socio-political world, what are the roles of men and women in the world. We've come right round circle, full circle, haven't we? We're right back to where we started. It's a dangerous place to be. This is very serious stuff we're talking about here. When we start to misunderstand the proper roles that we have in, in the family and misunderstand the proper roles that we have in the church, it will bring ruin to the family. We're seeing that today. And it will bring ruin to the church. We're seeing that today as well. If men neglect their proper duty as leaders, Satan can then manipulate women into that role. You brought that up just last Sunday. And all the order that God has designed from creation is now destroyed. That's just what happened at the fall. That's just what's happening in the home today. That's just what's happening in the church today. It's very serious stuff we're talking about. Now let's move on to verse 15, which I'll preface with. This is a notoriously difficult verse to understand. By the way, before I read this again, I looked at every single one. I have many, many study Bibles, some of them of very dubious quality. Every single study Bible in my house that I looked at neglects this verse. No one, no editor of any study Bible that I possess is willing to look at verse 15. Let's look at verse 15. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity in holiness with sobriety. What in the world does that mean? This is probably one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible, and many people are perfectly content to ignore it for the rest of their lives. Uh, we all understand that Paul isn't talking about eternal salvation. Let's be perfectly clear right up front. Paul is not talking about eternal salvation here that can be gained through childbearing somehow mystically. Oh, but, but she can't be saved because she hasn't had a child. Uh, that's poppycock, and we can throw that out. And that's, uh, by the way, how, all right, how, do, how can you just make a claim that something's poppycock? Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We all know it. Let's read it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, even childbearing, lest any man should boast. The Greek word for saved here is sozo. Sozo, S-O-Z-O. Uh, it's used elsewhere to describe the process of salvation. Continuing process. Uh, we see this alluded to. You want to see a place where this is used. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own sotso, your own salvation, with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Well, that makes it a little bit clearer. 
Let me explain it a bit more. I am eternally saved when I confess my sins and my need for salvation. We all accept that. We understand that. But as a Christian, I am expected to persevere, to continue, as the King James says, in the faith and to carry out God's calling, God's role in my life. Remember, we're, to, we're having a discussion of proper roles in the church. When I carry out that role, I am working out my salvation. One of those callings for women is the role of childbearing and the rearing of a family in a godly way, as only a mother can. By the way, that's the significance. I don't know if you noticed a little change. There's a very subtle change. Uh, verse 15. Uh, and here's an interesting thing. Uh, some people will tell you, well, uh, the King James is always the same. That's not necessarily true because the King James is not copywritten. So, for instance, in this Pew Bible, the uh, case that I was about to make isn't valid. Uh, the, uh, it says, notwithstanding she shall be saved in childbearing. That's what it says here. Uh, properly, and in many King James Bibles, and all my King James Bibles at home, it says they, which is accurate. Uh, they, women in general, will be saved by childbearing. She, individual. We're not talking about individual salvation. Subtle changes like that are very important. When Bible translators change things, the NIV in particular, and even variants of the King James, it's one of the, one of the negatives to being non-copywritten is people write any, anything they want in it. And when you miss that in your translation, it does us a disservice and it adds confusion to the text. The word is they. It's talking plural. Women in general will be saved through childbearing and raising the family properly. So, now that we've discussed a literal translation of the verse, that's what we just did, let's try to make a practical lesson from it. Because what good does this do us if we just discuss the literal translation and don't make a practical application? It's easy to picture the frustration in a church when they might support a good work or a good role, a good thing to do, a good project, good mission, or what have you, with words, but then nobody steps up and acts on it, right? It's very frustrating. For instance, we all nod, we say yes, yes, we ought to reach out to our community with the gospel, amen, by golly, that's what we ought to do. But how many of us actually do anything to advance that? When you get right down to it, what are we doing? It's pretty easy for us to say, yes, we ought to do that. Amen, we ought to do that when we're sitting here in church. But what are we actually doing during the week? Are we fulfilling our proper role? In everything we've looked at from verse 10 on, Paul's trying to get Timothy to stop focusing on a congregation of women who are sitting there fiddling with their hair, fiddling with their clothes, and instead focus on the individuals who are actually doing the jobs that they're supposed to be doing. 
We saw that in the men, verses 1 through 8. We've seen it in the women from verses 10 through 15. Just one active, responsive Christian who is striving to be better will bring more honor and glory to God than a whole church full of distracted, half-hearted pew warmers. You see, one of the problems in the church in America, as I see it, is too many pastors, too many church leaders, and I'll argue Paul's making this very case to Timothy, spend too much time massaging the whole church to make the whole church feel good as a whole. That's not enough. Because after all, we don't want to lose anybody. I don't know if you noticed, but people aren't actually beating the door down to get in here, right? So we can't afford to lose anybody, so we've got to massage the whole church so nobody leaves. Paul says to Timothy, don't worry about that. Focus on helping these people who are the rare individual who's actually trying to better their Christian walk, who's actually doing something. If you put your focus on that one, I can do more there than I can if you're massaging the whole church, Timothy. Focus on inspiring some engagement with men and women for God's work to go forward in the church. Proper roles need to be done. And it doesn't really matter how good people feel about that. That's what Paul's saying in this chapter. As individual church members, we need to continue in the faith, he says. We'll look at the bottom of the... If they continue in the faith, in charity and holiness, with sobriety. Faith is where the journey begins, right? It says it starts right off, continue in faith. Faith is where it starts. That's where both men and women need to start. That faith means a personal and a dynamic trust in God. Dynamic. That's, that's a word we don't often use. It means moving, in, in motion. Can I take you to work with me? I'll give you a little bit of training. I set up lasers last week. I spent a week spending, setting up lasers. There's two different ways I can set up a laser. What we call static or dynamic. Static means the part is sitting still. I step on a foot pedal. The laser comes across and it goes and writes a code. Dynamic is the part moves past. When a photo eye sees the part, the laser shoots at the moving target as the part goes by. Two different methods. Static is sitting still doing nothing. Dynamic is it's in motion, it's on the way, it's doing something. If you argue from the Greek, it actually means doing something with power. Dynamis is the root word. Faith is dynamic. It's a trusting God who's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where we start. That's salvation. Charity throughout the Bible is seen as even greater than faith. What do you mean? What do you mean love? Love's greater than faith? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The love chapter, right? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. It says, Now abide faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Even greater than faith is charity. 
See, faith that doesn't result in love is not the faith Paul's talking about here. If your faith doesn't result in love, then that's not real faith. He's talking about a faith that demonstrates it in works of love, like we saw in verse 10. Uh, let's back to verse 10 here. Chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Talks about women professing godliness with good works. That's how they ought to be. They ought to be living a life with good works. Talking out of love. Let's go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. We're almost done. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, it says, For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. I don't care about the superficial aspects, Paul says. Faith working through love. Philippians chapter 2. Verse 12 to 13. Wherefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And it goes on. We can go to First uh, Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, where Paul's talking about himself and Silas and Timothy. And he says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, the labor of love, the patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Faith and love, they're tied together. Starts with faith. That faith better carry over into love. And then he says holiness. Now holiness is only, you may think holiness is a very important topic to Paul, but he only mentions it eight times. Uh, and only here in 1 Timothy. Holiness is an attribute of God's, which points to his being distinct from the rest of creation. Only God is holy. All of the rest of creation is tainted. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse, verses 1 to 5 gives us a scene of the seraphim angels chanting, Holy, holy, holy around the throne of God. We'll talk about that more in just a few minutes. Isaiah was struck down in awe at that sight. Woe is me, for I am undone. All of these aspects, faith, charity, and holiness, are tied together with one, the last one, it says, with sobriety. Or some Bibles translate that as propriety. We actually saw it translated as propriety in verse 9. Uh, in like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety. We, we talked about how that, that word ought to have been propriety, because it's appropriate, that which is appropriate. It refers to prudence. It refers to self-control. So, breaking it all down, the whole topic we've looked at for chapter 2, let's, let's wrap the whole thought up. It says, the proper worship of God by men and women entails discipline, 
understanding and a willingness to make decisions which may run counter to popular opinions of the day. It needs a focus on God alone and serving Him as He deserves, regardless of what the world may say. That has been the focus of First uh, Timothy chapter 2. It seems like it's disconnected, but when you look at it and really break it down literally like we did, you see that the whole chapter is one unit talking about roles and proper worship of God in the church. And that's what it entails. you don't mind, I'd like to close in a word of prayer. I'm all done. Lord, we do thank you for, for your word so clearly and precisely explaining just exactly what your plans are for us. We do ask that you'll give us the discipline to be able to apply it, the discipline to search and to know exactly what you'd have for each individual here. I've said it before, I'll say it again, uh, I do believe our time is getting short. Help us to put some priority to this. Guide us through the rest of this day. It's in your name we pray. Amen.